0: Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, "Kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack, and here he comes!" Ryan. Oh, plays on. Three. Oh, who else? McDonald. T.J. From inside the center square, boys get once again to Americans Watching the Footy and Part 2 of our So You Didn't Crack the Eight special. I think we can consider it a special. I think it's pretty special. I like to think that. We like to think that we're special, don't we? We do. Our grandma says we're special. My cat's breath smells like cat food. I'm Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. We're coming to you from South San Francisco, California. And I would assume this isn't your first time listening to us, because... You probably at least listen to part one of our So You Didn't Crack the Eight series. It would be very weird if you just started now with part two. If you are starting with this, welcome. We covered five teams already. Those being the Crows, Bombers, Giants, Power, and Saints, in no particular order. We're doing this all randomly within the episodes just to make things interesting, hopefully get people to listen all the way through, even if they aren't fans of The particular team. Before we dive into the five teams that we have remaining, a couple little odds and ends. First off, I just checked and realized that in our three years watching this, and say three years, you know, makes us sound kind of inexperienced, but... We are inexperienced. That's kind of the point, honestly. But anyway, 13 of the 18 teams have played finals footy or will have played finals footy. We haven't seen Fremantle in a final yet. That'll change this weekend. And speaking of Fremantle, we know that Nat Fife has done one of his hamstrings again. He'll be out for the elimination final. And according to Ryan Daniels of 7 News, who's pretty good authority on a lot of on Western Australian footy news, Fife is likely out up to three weeks, so that could put him out through the preliminary final. We didn't know at the time recording the first one because we were doing this in random order, but turns out four of the five teams that we covered in that one, we have seen play finals. Only one of the five teams we're about to talk about has made finals within the last couple of seasons, and they didn't make finals last year. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of the common theme for this one, if you wanted to link anything together. Also, to tie up a couple of loose ends... I forget if I had mentioned that the Giants are the only team in the competition that didn't win a single game over a team that ended up making finals. I might have said it in our round 23 recap. I don't think I said it when we broke down their 2022 season last episode, but I've said it now and I'm going to say it one more time just to make sure I've said it. Giants are the only team to have failed to beat a single opponent that made finals this year. Conversely, Melbourne are the Only team to have avoided a loss to a non-finals opponent. But we'll be able to get into that much further when we actually preview finals. And as we break down the four games in our next episode, episode number 60, which will be released tomorrow, we'll talk about factoids like that as well as things like why each team will or won't win the flag. For these, though, if you need a little refresher, we give you a little rundown of the season of the teams that did not make the eight, as the episode title implies, a little bit of what went right and what went wrong on a team scale and an individual scale. There's a lot of W's and R's there. That can be tough to say. Give a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of foresight, and hopefully keep you entertained. I think the five teams that are remaining for this episode got a lot to say about just about all of them. So... RNG, take it away. The wheel or number generator or whatever you want to use for that, we're partial to the Wheel of Fortune spinning wheel sound effect, as you just heard, has spun to Hawthorne first. Hawthorne finished 8-14 and in 13th at 89.8%. Obviously, a big change in Sam Mitchell taking the reins, Hawthorne's first new coach in 17 years, and... They've got direction from this first year. My biggest concern for them going forward as a team is being able to pace themselves and have enough endurance to play the way they've wanted to. Because when they've been at their best, they've been moving very quickly, doing well on counterattacks. But the pace at which they're able to succeed like that, you can't keep that up for four quarters. That was especially evident early in the season and just about all of their losses. The flow of their games kind of changed by the halfway point, but overall, I really liked what the Hawks did this season. As I've said, almost every week, with only a couple of exceptions. I know I'm not supposed to like them, but I really enjoy the way they play. I think Sam Mitchell's a damn good coach. They've got some exciting young talent, and this is a team that I really hadn't watched very closely over the last couple of years. You know, Geelong play on Easter Monday, and then after that, they weren't in too many significant games. And then this year, they were competitive pretty much every game, with only a couple of exceptions. Round 22 against Richmond, they were pretty bad, and that was really the only time all year I haven't liked their game plan. And the game in Darwin about halfway through the season, the first of their meetings with the Suns, they looked pretty awful. Overall, though, it would be hard to call this season anything but a roaring success for Hawthorne. They were competitive against good teams, they beat a couple of final teams, including arguably their biggest rival. And the way I see them, it's like, you know that Gordon Ramsay meme where he's like super mean to just about everyone and then he's like really nice to one person? That's me with Hawthorne versus the other teams that missed finals. I just have a lot of positive things to say about them. On the close games track, eight of Hawthorne's 14 losses were within four goals. And five of those came against teams in the finals. And it's worth noting, a lot of their games, the final score made it look less competitive than it was because there were those games where they jumped out to an early lead of three, four, maybe even five goals and then just ran out of gas and at some point in the fourth quarter or somewhere late in the third, usually in the fourth though, their opponents would finally figure it out and just go on a tear and the Hawks would run out of steam. The latter would often happen before the former I keep thinking a lot about that round six game, that Anzac Day game they played against the Swans out in Launceston as a really good representation of both the best and the worst of Hawthorne's season. From cenkwoth Jaff going all the way forward, they were pushing the pace for the first two and a half quarters, and then after that, the bottom fell out, or their transmission failed, or whatever you want to say, it was just vapor lock. They pushed themselves too hard, and Sydney were able to overcome them with the skill they had. Now, we've been really excited to watch CJ his first couple seasons, but he really came into his own this year despite the injuries he had to deal with being so central to their movement. You know, he wasn't the biggest intercept mark. James Sicily often played that role, and I'm still not sure how he missed out on the All-Australian 22 A lot of positives from other younger members of their defensive core as well. Later on in the season, Blake Hardwick and Connor Nash came to mind in particular. Sam Mitchell is probably my favorite of the new coaches. Yes, Craig McRae has done an awesome job putting his team in position to win close games, and they're obviously very well drilled. But I think Mitchell did such a good job with in-game adjustments and just coming up with different game plans that let his team adapt to the They'd be ready for different opponents without completely compromising them. You know, they were still very clearly trying to play their style while factoring in their opponent's strengths and weaknesses, and I really like that. And as I've said before, Mitchell had adjustments throughout the season that the common observer would not call out and say, you know, at halftime, this needs to be done. And coaching by the book and making the obvious adjustments is important, but... He's operating on a higher level than that. He's not just doing those things. And the growing pains of developing that style were to be expected. And he and Hawthorne have embraced it. They have bought in. Being able to moderate, you know, those faster sections with being able to slow things down so they can have enough energy to go the distance against a lot of teams. And go for speed. Yes, of course. Over the past couple weeks, I've been looking up forward and noticing that they're still a bit too reliant on their age 30-plus scores. Luke Bruce is 31, Jack Dunstan is 30. Both still have plenty of talent and at least a couple seasons left. But other than Mitch Lewis and Dylan Moore once or twice in the first half of most games, I'm not seeing the other parts of the forward two-thirds really being integrated all that well into their scoring. Speaking of Dylan Moore, it was really cool over the course of the season to see his evolution as a strong tackler, developing his game outside of the forward 50 and outside of the first half. And I was just kind of on par with my takeaways from Hawthorne this season. I hadn't expected such a positive outcome from Moore this season. Going in, I was more looking forward to what John Newcomb would bring. And he kind of did what we expected, continuing to build himself up in the midfield A strong clearance getter. Did have to work through extra attention as the season went on and hasn't fully adjusted to that yet, but that's coming of age as a prime player in any sport. Newcomb was one of two Rising Star nominees for Hawthorne this season, the other being Josh Ward after his breakout performance in round 18, their 25-point win over West Coast. Hard to believe they only had those two with the other talents they have, but I guess a lot of them might not have been eligible. Just still a pretty young list, even with a couple older pieces that we mentioned. And in time, Mitchell will be able to integrate them into his system. Though it's going to be very tough to replace Ben McAvoy, and the ruck spot was a position of concern throughout the season. They got hit pretty hard with injuries, especially there. But those injuries make you think, man, if they did... This well, with what they were missing, with better health, could they be a competitor for a final spot next year? And I think it's very possible. I think a sophomore slump is less likely with them than it's been with some teams. And if their schedule lines up favorably, it could be a really nice year. In terms of how to fill that one spot, though, after McAvoy broke his collarbone, Ned Reeves was the main guy for a while, though I was never completely sold on him. And he also looked pretty good once McAvoy came back when he started trending toward half forward. So maybe a bit of a positional predicament there. And I wish we'd been able to see more out of Max Lynch, not just because his Instagram username is Maximum Lunch, but also because he's just entertaining to watch. One of the most purely physical players that I saw for much of the season, you know, not as much in the finesse department. But I doubt that Reeves and Lynch can be the answer on their own. So maybe Ruckman is going to be one of the spots that Hawthorne look to shore up with their first round draft pick. That's a team that would make sense to go after someone like Brody Grundy as well. Grundy, maybe someone on the younger side like Lloyd Meek. For Fremantle. They've already started to make some moves this offseason. They've been named as Carl Amon's preferred destination. So look for some sort of trade to be worked out at some point there with Port Adelaide. The Hawks are the preferred destination for Carl Amon, who's an unrestricted free agent coming from Port Adelaide. I believe he has some family connections to the club. He had been in a weird spot for a lot of his time at Port Adelaide going between midfield and half forward with no real solid placement in one spot or the other. As Hawthorne are probably going to be a developing side for at least one more year, Sam Mitchell will have the time to be able to feel things out with him. Also forgot to mention in terms of older scorers alongside Bruce and Gunston, Chad Wingard will be 30 near the end of next season. He missed some significant time with a couple injuries this year. It seems like Hawthorne are one of the clubs that were hit the hardest by injuries as a whole. Maybe it's just because it hit bigger names. I'm not entirely sure. But that bad injury look, again, that's why I think maybe they're a year away. Maybe they're not a year away from being a year away. One strategic thing that a couple people on the Hawk Talk Reddit noticed, going to credit, I'm going to try to say this correctly, Golitsyn Nosenko for being the first to mention the relentless leading that the entire list did, just creating much more fluid passages going all the way across the ground. And I think that was one of the biggest things that helped them have such a free-flowing counterattack. Players demanding the ball in optimal areas, catching off guard with the directions in which they've led. It's a point where you're able to see the chemistry between players and the team just buying into Sam Mitchell's system. As we did last episode, we're going to name one positive and one negative player. Each of us are going to name one positive and one negative player based on the opinions we had of them entering this season and just what we thought of their play overall. My positive is probably one of the later blooming positives from this season, and it's Finn McGinnis, because within the last month, month and a half of the campaign, he emerged as a really strong tagger. And... I feel like that's often an underrated part. You can have that one guy who you can send to the top matchup and know that he's at least going to make their life more difficult. There are some clubs where ta- the Tigers have more of a fringe spot. I'm thinking of Geelong, for example, with Marco O'Connor and how hard it's been for him to get a game. But the skills that McGinnis brings both as a tagger and as a whole in the midfield are going to make him a really valuable piece for the Hawks. For a number of years. In terms of negatives, I didn't see nearly as much as I would have liked out of Liam Shields this year. seems like he's probably toward the end of his time at the club. Did play 13 games, but just didn't register to me as an impactful player. My positive, there are so many different guys I could go with here. This was a team that I really didn't know all that much about, so it was a lot of learning. Injuries took him away later in the season, but I really like what Sam Frost did defensively. I like Connor Nash. I like Josh Ward. He only played a couple games, but Jai Sarong looked really good. But I'm going to keep it simple and go with Jai Newcomb because when he's on, he's just a clearance machine. No, he didn't have a perfect year, but for a young player, pretty nice place to start. I'd say third and the rising star voting isn't bad at all. My negative is going to be Jacob Kashetsky because he had a pretty quiet year overall. He had been one of the more well-established players in this group, and he didn't establish much of anything this year. On to the second team of this episode and the seventh overall. And we're going to go a bit north to the Gold Coast. Another team on the rise, and it's fair to say this is the best team they've ever fielded. And one statistic in particular shows that. This is the first ever Suns team to finish with more points scored than allowed. They finished with a 10-12 and 12 record, 12th on the ladder, but a 102.8 percentage. Pops and bottles for that. And the only other time they even had 10 wins was because it was the Gary Apple Jr. show. This is a pretty deep list. Even with the significant injuries they had, which started before the season with Ben King going down, had an ACL injury pretty late into the preseason. He is on track to be back in time for the start of the 2023 campaign, and that puts him in a really interesting spot in terms of what to do with all the talls they have because they had a couple great signings in that department in the form of Maviro Chol and Levi Casbolt. Chole had clearly bulked up and used his muscle really well compared to the kind of thinner frame we saw from him at Richmond and kind of a fringe backup ruck spot a lot of the time. Chole had a lot of time at key forward this year alongside Casbold, who came over as a rookie draft selection after a lengthy stint at Carlton. Chol's work in the air impressed me in particular because I knew what he was capable of on the ground going in. And Casbold's set shot remains a little unsteady, but with the quantity of marks that they've been getting. I can't pinpoint more than one game where I can say his kicking may have cost him a win. Just don't give it to him when he's already got four goals. He's never going to get five. Yes, there were some moments that kind of looked like same old shit for the Suns. I called it early in the season when they got absolutely blasted at GWS. And then some of the less optimistic onlookers might say that they just kind of took the same sort of arc they do most seasons. But I think, unlike a lot of years, they have an excuse. You know, this isn't a group that's got the depth to withstand more than a couple of injuries because it takes time to build up a list where, you know, just have a good 22 or 23 when you have a good, you know, 30, 32 guys, if not more than that. And it would be hard to ask any team to withstand just the significant number of major defensive injuries that the Suns suffered, including season-ending injuries to Lockie Weller, Will Powell, and Connor Butterick, all within four weeks of each other. Having the context of those injuries also helps understand why they faltered when they did going down the stretch instead of just writing off their fall from 7-6 and six and 8-8 eight and eight as typical Suns. And yes, they are likely losing Isaac Reichen, but the young forward group can likely make up for him in a lot of ways. Ben Ainsworth is 24 and showed a lot of great size toward becoming one of the premier small fours in the competition. Elijah Hollins is 6'2", but I see him as being a little smaller for some reason. He can fit that fast midfield running role in which Reichen found himself at times. Malcolm Roses Jr. is 21 and showed some great spark starting in the games in front of his family and friends in Darwin. And then Joel Jeffrey also plays smaller than he is. He's 192 centimeters. That's about 6'3 and a half, but he moves like he's 10 centimeters shorter. And also, the Suns ought to win that rank and trade in the long run with what it's likely going to cost the Crows in terms of draft picks. I was a little surprised when Stuart Dew got his two-year contract extension during the season. There have been rumors for a while that the decision was going to wait until after the home and away campaign. I'm more positive about Dew as a coach than I have been in past years, but there are still a couple things that I'm not sure about. The biggest one being the roles they put Matt Rowell in. I mean, he's damn good in any spot, but is having him as a tackler, kind of a defensive midfielder, is that the best use of his abilities? He looked very natural in that role especially in the earlier part of the season and his stoppage work and his tackling helped free up his good friend and longtime teammate Noah Anderson for some of his best work. So maybe they have really found something there. I would like to see more run out of Raul, but between Anderson and what Hollins might be able to do, maybe it won't be as necessary and maybe that's the right, the right place for Raul is where he was early on. And thank goodness we got a full season out of him. The other thing about Stewart, do I notice, he seems like such an easy guy to like. You know, the way, he's, the way he relates to his players, doing things like bringing Alex Davies' grandpa into the team song. You want to see him have success as a coach. And Davies is just 20. He'll be 21 right around the time the next home and away season starts. Youth is one of the biggest positives for this Suns team. On the individual scale, the most pleasant surprise for me... I think there's a lot of talk about the forward group here. There's a lot of talk about the midfielders, but I'm actually going to recognize a defender that I really liked. Would not have expected you to say that the way the season started for the Suns. It's Caleb Graham. He played really well in both games in Darwin, continued that form in a win over the Crows. He provides an anchor for them defensively as a big guy who can take some intercept marks and just kind of as a foundation piece that you can structure the rest of your defense around. You know, we've talked a lot about how great it is when clubs have guys that they can slide around into different spots, whether that be like a Griffin Logue or a Noah Balta, but you need foundation pieces that you know every week, all right, this guy is going to handle this spot, and this is what we expect out of it. And Caleb Graham can provide that. He was thrust into that spot when Rory Thompson went down injured again, and being able to have both of those in that spot, it'll be cool to see where they differ in their play style a bit more. My negative is going to be Jack Lukosius, who, fortunately, he just turned 22 this year, so he's got time to get things right, but I thought his kicking wasn't as good as it had been in past years. His ball use wasn't as good, and a lot of his turnovers were just very avoidable. Well, you mentioned one of those steady spot guys as a positive for the Suns. I'm going to talk about one of their more utility pieces in Nick Holman. He found himself in half forward spots, some flanking roles a number of times this year and did really well there as a player who helped complete their forward ranks a lot of the time. I could see him and Elijah Hollins fitting in that sort of role a lot, helping support Some of the smaller targets like Ainsworth in that respect. In terms of negatives, I didn't see nearly as much from Oleg Markov as I would have liked this season. He played 11 games this season, but didn't have that standout impact like I had seen from him a few times over the past two seasons. And on a team where they needed some defensive depth in the latter part of the season, that was a bit of a concern. Would require a bounce back campaign from Oleg Markov. I'm also going to put a little bit of a negative spin, oddly enough, on Jared Witz's season because we don't doubt Witz's capabilities in those immediate ruck contests, but whenever he's not in them, I struggle to see other skills of his shine through. And he is able to still get pushed around. I was surprised at how easily Charlie Dixon overcame him in round 15 in Adelaide, a game which the power won by two. Thanks to Anchor and all the other platforms that host our show. Thanks to anyone who's newly subscribed. Thank you if you have chosen to support our program. You can always find us on Twitter, reacting in real time to everything AFL, at Americans Footy. You can find me individually at Castle Media. You can find me individually at BenjaminHK01. And you can now find Grian Harambe, the footy Cap not just on Instagram at Brian, but also sitting next to his dad, Ethan. Three teams to go. All right, where are we going next? Is it the one team that just missed out or one of the two that missed out the most? It's one of the two that missed out the most, but not the most. Thanks, Percentage. And also, thanks, Collingwood at Essendon. It's time to talk about the West Coast Eagles. They finished 2-20, in 17th with a 59.8 percentage, the first half of the season was really rough with injuries and some times where they just looked completely checked out mentally. As the year went on, they went from looking like an absolute train wreck to just a bad football team. Injuries really piled up on this team. The effect when Nick he was hurt versus when he was out there was staggering, but there was a lot more to it than just that, and... We have our resident Eagles fan here to talk about it. Before the season even began for the Eagles, we knew that this would be a tough one going in. The premiership core continuing to age and COVID hitting the club particularly hard before the season even began. Combine that with the poor management of the virus amid state zero COVID measures over the past couple years. And you can understand why everything snowballed the way it did to the point that top-ups were required for the round two game against North Melbourne. You're welcome, North, for that 15-point win, which you clearly otherwise would not have gotten. The virus continued to wreak havoc throughout the season. In fact, it got to a point where Adam Simpson didn't meet one of the people that played for the Eagles over the course of the season because he was out with COVID for the round eight game against Brisbane. And that was when Jake Florenka was brought up as a top-up. The two of them never crossed paths in person. And that's a shame because I feel like Florenca is going to be a player that gets away from them because they didn't secure his services in the mid-season draft. I'd like to thank Reddit user Kim Jong-Fun for reminding me about the Florenka factoid. That round two game did have a record attached to it. 14 changes from round one. There were five top-up players in there. And the 14th and final change happened literally right before bounce, like as close to the bounce as you could get when another player was ruled out. And Declan Mountford, who had been named as an emergency, was going to be watching in the stands, was told, hey, you got to play. So here he is, you know, partially in his playing gear, going down the elevator. Jermit Brereton was in the same elevator as him. I think that was the perfect representation of the West Coast Eagles pre-buy, confused and kind of sadly amazed onlookers observing a team that did their damnedest to function when they knew they couldn't. There was a lack of real drive, innovation, passion, aggression, angry rant man for sure. It was the same stuff that we'd—it's ex- the same stuff that we'd come to expect from the Eagles, getting those uncontested marks, swinging around to the other side. And I'm trying to work the wing, but this is not 2018. Everyone had caught up to Adam Simpson's style. And when it was not as good of a year for Liam Ryan, who had been such a central piece to that in his debut year in terms of the energy that that he brings on the wing in those marking contests, I could really feel his absence more than probably any other player not named Nick Natanui. Ryan was out in COVID protocols round one. He was injured rounds 10 through 14. Of course, there was that round four win against Collingwood, but that was also a Wario meme. I won, but at what cost moment? Because that was when Nick Nat knew he got injured. He didn't play again until round 16 and he wasn't consistent when he came back. I really had very little positive to take away from that game because I knew it was, because I knew it was a fluke. The Eagles wouldn't normally kick that straight. They kicked 14-3 that day, one of their most accurate hit One of their most accurate games ever. And Collingwood just kind of gifted them the game. So it wasn't really until after the bye, looking at round 14 against Geelong, that I really thought of anything positive from them. And that was a game they lost by 18. But the fact that it was that close, and that the younger players were fueling movement through the middle, and were willing to push the pace themselves, it was kind of a revelation. And then we didn't see that as much most of the rest of the way. Once the veterans got healthier, you can understand why the youngsters had to make way, but it's a shame that it occurred the way they did, because we hardly saw Isaiah Winder after a couple good performances from him. Greg Clark was all... Ray Clark was only in the 22 four times before the bye and then was just a sub four times in the last 10 games. There was nothing to lose on a team destined to do nothing by getting the younger players the experience. You know, I would have had a much better outlook on this season had Adam Simpson and company been willing to throw the younger parts of the list into the fire and just see how much heat they can take. And if they come out burned by it, you kind of expect that. Thankfully, we did see nine games out of Rhett Basso, who made his debut in that game against Geelong. He also got very good reviews two games later from Jack Revolt, of all people. Basso had clearly found AFL form quickly, was a noticeable factor in that round 14 game, in their win against Essendon round 15, and again against Richmond, a game where they had as many set shots as the Tigers. And that time, the accuracy let them down. I almost felt like that was payback for the Collingwood game. And Brady Hoff, as well as another player that I took a lot of time to appreciate this year, played 15 games, was a good interceptor and starter of possessions at halfback. And when Jeremy McGovern was out for so much of the season, being injured and subbed off in round 11 and then getting a really bad rib injury, in round 14, it was awesome to see a couple people be able to sort of fill the gap that he left. Of course, no one did so more than Tom Barris. He really established himself as one of the top intercept defenders in the game. It was probably the most redeeming quality about this team. One of the most watchable parts. Pretty consistent week in and week out, although round 23, Geelong, did a great job keeping the ball away from him. And as you talked about, that's a sign of respect that a team is working around somebody like that in their game plan. You know, they'd rather kick towards Shannon Hearn or someone like that than you. And yes, even though Bunga is up there in age, he's still plenty capable himself. He'll be playing on. I leave the season disappointed, but not surprised because it was understandable why it was so rough right away, especially when Oscar Allen and Campbell Chester had their seasons wiped out by injury Before they started, I'm hoping for a big comeback year for Oscar Allen because Josh Kennedy leaves a big key forward spot for someone to step up and claim it. I'm glad Kennedy got a pretty good farewell scoring eight goals in his final game, but damn, it hurts that they couldn't get the win for him. As I said, the outcome of the game was less important than the vibes. And speaking of key forwards, hopefully we'll see a cleaner beginning of the season from Jack Darling, who had a slow start. By his own choice. He definitely did round into form as the season went on. Just imagine if he'd chosen to do it sooner. I'm not sold by any means on what Adam Simpson is trying to do at this point. Just because I'm not sure how much of it is his doing. That that changes style. The quarter running or if that's just kind of natural for a younger team to do that. Because we saw it out of a number of younger sides this season. We saw it out of, we saw it out of the Crows, the youngest of them all. We saw it out of Collingwood, out of Hawthorne, as we mentioned earlier. So next season is going to be my referendum year on Adam Simpson. Ethan, I know you didn't watch this team live nearly as much as I did just because of the nature of the overlaps and us prioritizing our own teams naturally. But which players are your biggest positives and negatives from this season? My biggest positive is Jake Waterman. Really? I didn't realize just how significant he was in kind of linking guys together in the forward 50. So he's my pick there. He's had some troubles with getting consistent games over the past few years, but he did play 20 this season, and hopefully he can stick in the main lineup. He also kicked goals in seven straight games and eight of his final nine. So hopefully that consistency... Sticks around as well, because I can see him as somewhat of a glue going from half forward. My negative is Sam petrovsky Seton, because if you had asked me how many games he played in this year, I would have guessed like five. He played in 14, but was pretty silent in a whole bunch of them. My positive is someone that I deliberately haven't mentioned yet. It's Xavier O'Neill who really impressed me in the final six games with the tackling that he was able to get, the turnovers that he was able to force. Not much of a score, but definitely an enabler. And that's the kind of thing that the Eagles are going to need because they still have Darling and hopefully Allen next year to finish the scoring. You can get someone like Tim Kelly running through the middle, but he's nowhere near as good at creating those possessions and those chances in the middle. As O'Neal is. My negative is going to be Jackson Nelson. When I noticed him, it was because he was get it it was because he was buying a player's fake. Yes, one of those was Tyson Stengel in the last round, but I just feel like his spot could have been better used. I wish the Eagles had been more willing to try out different. Groups of players in different spots throughout the season. Hopefully, we see more of that next year because there's time for them to figure it out, and the coaching staff needs to make the most of that time. Also, Jack Petricelli needs to step up for a step up next season, or I'll not want to see him on the list past that. He's got speed. I'm not sure what else he has at this point. With the rise of players like. Kelly, like Jermaine Jones, who seems pretty natural as a mover out of halfback, hopefully he can add that defensive side to his game. Just having one speed demon who lacks other skills just screams to me as a list spot that could be as someone who doesn't add all that much value. And building on Jones, Redditor11073 noted that Jones provided pace on rebounds and That, quote, his willingness to take the game on was great to watch, and I couldn't agree more. Got a lot of great interaction on the Eagles subreddit. Maybe because they were just eager, or Eagle, if you really want to force the pun, talk about the positives they had. A few people just wrote Tom Barris. And other common threads were that Brady Hoff and Red Basso have big futures, and holy cow, I hope that's the case. I just hope next year's Eagles are more competitive. They have no reason not to be. It was depressing seeing a half-empty stadium with the home team constantly trailing by 60 towards 80 points at halftime. Even if they're not good, and they're probably not going to be good for a few years, you want them to at least be, you know, a team you don't want to face on the road. So this is interesting. Two teams left, and they're ninth and 18th. Hard to be more opposite than that, and yet there's a common thread between them. Someone plays for both of them. Is his true identity Harry or Ben? We may never know. They have yet to play against each other. Until they do, I am convinced that they are not they, but they are it. They are not two, but one. Take it away, RNG. And RNG says, join in the chorus. North Melbourne, our expectations for you were low, but holy fuck. The Roos finished 2-20. and They finished in 18th with a 55.8 percentage. We admire just how committed they were to taking this wooden spoon. David Noble was fired after 16 games. It was weird timing, though, after a 7-point loss to Collingwood. They led that game most of the way, actually, so... Benjamin has speculated that... Everyone kind of knew beforehand that it would be his last game, and maybe with that motivation, the team really went out and gave it all they had. Their one real high point was the Richmond win in round 18, the debut of caretaker coach Lee Adams. Remember, their other win was against those Eagles top-ups. The other big win this year for North came off the field with the hiring of Alistair Clarkson as their new head coach. My stance on Clarkson, for those of you that haven't listened before, is basically, I don't know if he's that good of an X's and O's coach. I've watched three years of this, so I don't really have much to base off, you know, the glory days at Hawthorne. And plus those games go too far back for us to get on Watch AFL. Additionally, there's a chance that some of his tactics that were innovative at one point aren't anymore, just because the game evolves. But what North really need is structure and stability, and Clarkson will provide that. He spent a lot of time studying the Golden State Warriors this past year. I think he also was checking out the Green Bay Packers at one point. And I don't think you're going to see people getting fired or stepping down every five seconds like we've seen with North for quite a while now. We'll note that injuries certainly didn't help North's cause. Will Phillips, their top draft selection from 2020, had his season wiped out by multiple bouts of What you Australians call glandular fever, we know it as mononucleosis, or our favorite nickname for it, the kissing disease. And then, of course, Ben Cunnington didn't play until the very end of the season as he was undergoing chemotherapy and treatment for testicular cancer. Clearly a morale boost, if nothing else, to have him back for the end of things. And he has signed on for two more years. It was a rough go for a lot of the young cast. Jason Horn-Francis was inconsistent. You want to talk about inconsistent? let's talk about Nick Larkey, who has the talent to kick six, seven goals in the game with ease, but some weeks just completely vanishes. A second tall really helps his cause not needing to be, you know, that singular tall target. And that's when Todd Goldstein playing forward became a real positive factor Goldstein was able to play forward more and more because of the work by Tristan Jerry for most of the season before he went down in round 16 at Geelong. And then Callum Coleman-Jones in the final couple games as well, after having a rough beginning to his AFL campaign at North. Goldstein is still a vital piece at age 34, but he's not as much of a necessity in the ruck department at the very least. As well as Horn Francis, Jaden Stevenson sure couldn't find it. Taron Thomas's was more understandable given the tragedy in in his family. His grandmother died during the season. He was one player that we were really excited to watch going into this year and never really got his campaign off the ground. And then Mackay, I don't know whether to call him Ben or Harry. I guess because it's North, we're supposed to call him Ben. Barry. We'll just call him Barry. Yeah, other people have done that too, but crap. He played 15 games and was subbed out three times. You can see his prowess as an intercept defender and just how much he was missed, whether it was games where he was subbed out or just medically unavailable. Josh Walker and Aiden Kaur are not the guys you want matched up against, for example, Bunny Franklin. It's going to be a while, even under Clarkson, before this team is legitimately good. Even if they make some additions through trades and free agency, it's going to be a lengthy process, but I'm going to give you my prediction for them right now without knowing who's going to be traded, who's going to be acquired, what they do in the draft. I'm telling you right now, they're going to go 5-17, and 17, and one of those wins will be a legitimate hard-earned win over a really good team. And not just because that really good team laid an egg, like how they kind of beat Richmond by accident this year. Nowhere to go but up for them, but there are already some upward-trending pieces In very limited time, as in the last game of the year, I like what I saw from Josh Goder. Looking forward to a full year from him. I already talked about the progress that Tristan Jerry and Callan Coleman-Jones have made to solidify the Ruck for the next few years. And if you have Curtis in your name at North, you did good things this year. Curtis Taylor is a really complete midfielder who has a good scoring finish as well, and Paul Curtis should have been in the long list at the very least for 22 under 22 selection. He should have been in that 40. He will be soon. He's a small forward that leads to the ball really well, is willing to scrap out possessions on the ground. Whereas Horn Francis didn't get near the expectations for him this season, Paul Curtis surpassed his. And for that reason, he is my biggest positive for North this year. My negative, I mentioned him earlier. I just kept hearing everyone badmouth Aiden Core and I can understand why with poor decision-making on both sides of the ball for him, but I don't think all of it was his doing either. Ethan, who are your standouts in either direction? My positive is Luke Davies Uniac. How the hell have we not mentioned him yet? His possession numbers have been pretty fantastic almost every week. And they're functional possession numbers. That kind of segues into my disappointment. Called it. Aaron Hall, who we knew about coming into this year, Thought he was kind of one of the more foundational pieces of this defense. And instead, he ran a lot and broke the record for most meters gained in a single game. 1,169. Nice. That occurred in their first game against Adelaide out in Hobart in round 15. And we immediately pointed to that as a prime example of what Aaron Hall offers to the team. Frivolous statistics. But yeah, Davies Uniacke. I didn't talk about him much because I expected you to get to him and I feel like he's the person that everybody focuses on and rightfully so with who's going to fuel North going forward between him and Jai Simkin going through the middle. Simkin's probably going to be the next captain. I also want to give a dishonorable mention to Atu of who I think has a lot of physical talent, but just could not piece it together this year at all. You know, thinking about how we talked about some of these teams that are near the very bottom. We took a lot of time to talk about the lesser pieces on them because, again, you'll find people talking about LDU everywhere. You'll find people talking about what Callen Ward still brings to the Giants. More places that you'll hear people talking about what James Peatling can bring other than three weeks of kicking three goals. But yes, Davies Uniac is a star in the making if he's not already there. And I really thought for a while that his career was going to get wasted at Arden Street, But with the potential for both success and stability that Alistair Clarkson provides, I have a more optimistic outlook for him and for the club altogether. Davies Uniac was, of course, mentioned by multiple North fans on Reddit. User Jump Jive and Jelly said that this was the year that Davies Uniac became the elite midfielder he was destined to be. But he needs others to go with him as they also develop. And we haven't talked about Cameron Zerhar in this one. But there's a clear possibility of, of Zerhar being lost to a number of teams who may be looking to get him. The question is, you know, what terms are they offering? I've heard Essendon. I've heard Fremantle. He's going to be a tough one to replace with his aerial abilities. At the same time, though, even with everything he offered, his goal kicking touch wasn't much of a touch at times. But as a whole, there are a lot of reasons to look up. I'm glad that a couple other users mentioned Bailey Scott, because he got more time on the wing as well. And I feel like he's a guy that's overlooked for much of the season as well. With how young North is, a lot of these players who really start to gain their footing this year, we can look back on this year as when certain players start to emerge. Whereas for the last team that's left, let's just have the wheel sound effect again, just because while I continue talking, we know what's there for Carlton. They have a lot of high profile players on their list. It looked like this was a year where they were going to be able to put things together and break through and make finals for the first time in nine years. I mean, hell, they started 8-2. And then reality caught up to them. They couldn't rely on big second quarters forever. And there were times later in the season where those late charges were too much for them. Carlton traded losses and wins after that opening stretch before losing their last four. The final two of those by less than a goal by 5 to Melbourne in round 22, and by 1 to Collingwood in round 23. Both of their games against Collingwood were down to the wire, and the Boos were on the wrong side of each of them. Carlton finished 12-10 and at 108.3%. They missed out on finals by 0.542%. That is the second smallest margin to miss out ever. Over the course of the season, I think there were A lot of different takeaways we got from watching the Blues. First was, holy shit, David Teague wasted a lot of talent and tried to force the round peg into the square hole to play his system. Now, I don't know if Michael Voss is a great coach or if he just made the obvious adjustments, but there's some talent at Carleton, especially on the offensive side, and I'm glad they were fun to watch rather than just boring. And a lot of the reason why we didn't see as much of that defensive talent is because there was a laundry list of defensive injuries throughout the year. Mitch McGovern started off really well moving back to halfback. He went down in round two. Took forever for Caleb Marchbank to make his way back. Oscar McDonald had a season wiped out by a stress fracture in his back. Zach Williams missed double-digit rounds. Jacob Wheatering had an AC joint injury that kept him out for six weeks. Those in-game injuries when they occurred cost Carlton a couple times. Wiedering went down in the first game against Collingwood. Mark Pitnett injured his PCL round six at Fremantle. The Dockers already had the upper hand in that one, but him being out really shut the door in a lot of ways. And then Pitnett wasn't 100% when he finally came back in rounds 20, 22, and 23. Thinking back as well to round four when they lost at the Gold Coast Suns, Patrick Cripps went down early in that one with a hamstring injury. I'm still surprised he only missed one game with that. Their struggles in those situations led to reinforce my belief that preparing for a game without a player is a lot easier than dealing with the mid-game injury to one of your stars. If you could spend a whole week knowing, all right, we've got to play this game without Patrick Cripps, it affects your game plan and you can prepare for those things. Whereas if it happens in the second quarter, Kind of hard to adjust at that point. Tom McConing did an admirable job filling in for Mark Pitnett as their first Ruckman, though he is clearly not suited to that role full-time. Don't get why he was left out in the end of it, though. He became less effective as the year went on, but I still would have kept him in there. I think he's got a body type that fits a lot of different roles. You can put him as a forward, you can put him as a defender, Whatever you do, put him in marking contests because he'll win them because he's strong. I said we strong, man. DeCone was the only case where I really had a complaint about selection for the Blues because of how top heavy their list is. I do have some issues with them tactically, such as Michael Voss being one of those coaches that will never tag, you know, against a guy like Lockie Neal. You really have to. I don't care if it goes against everything you believe in. You have to make accommodations like that when you're facing top opponents. And then looking at the two most recent Coleman medalists. First time that's happened in a century plus, I think, that it's been two different Coleman medalists on the same team in consecutive years. Harry Mackay had some general inaccuracy that we've come to expect from him. And Charlie Kernow, despite winning the Coleman, did waste a lot of chances by playing on and just generally kicking too quickly. And we really noticed that At the very end, when he had a kick that could have helped put away the game against Collingwood, instead of making it a 29 point margin, it remained at 24, and we know what happened from there. Those seem like fixable errors, though. A lot of the individual issues seem easily approachable and fixable. That game against Collingwood, if they look over the film at all, I'm not sure if, you know, it's one where they're so scarred by it that they'll never look at the film or that. They want to make sure it never happens again, and we'll look at the film every day forever, but some awful ball use really hurt them. First turnovers in their own end, then a late turnover in the forward 50 from, I believe it was Durden, actually. That's Corey Durden, no relation to Sam Durden. One thing I gathered from the second Collingwood game, car call because Carlton were the home team, and also from just that final four-week losing streak was that Carlton are an exceedingly high-ceiling, low-floor team. As Reddit user Goliath and put it on r slash carltonblues, our best footy can obliterate any team's best footy, exceptions being Melbourne and Geelong. They cite the first game against Richmond, the nine goals in a quarter against Sydney, the eight against... And ends by saying, if only we can maintain the heat. One guy who did maintain the heat just about all year was Sam Doherty. Inspirational story. All he had to do to be a success was set foot on the field. and He did more than that. He was one of their top defenders and one of the top defenders in the entire competition all year long. I think it would be fair to include him as one of those players who exceeded expectations. I would also put Charlie Kernow in there, not just because of the Coleman medal, but because. Of the way he plays, he doesn't look as tall as he's listed, but he plays as if he's another few inches bigger, you know. The way he takes marks, the way he uses his body is the sort of stuff you'd expect out of a guy who's like six foot seven. But if we're asking who kind of came out of nowhere to surprise me this year for Carleton, I'm going to go with Jesse Motlop, who I love in that goal sneak role. He's talented. He's fast. He's smooth with the ball. He's entertaining. He called him a bonus piece to Carlton's scheme a couple episodes ago, and I really like that. Goal sneaks can often be that bonus piece, I think. And then my disappointment for the Blues, I think I got to go with Louis Young. He actually did all right in that Collingwood game. But for a lot of the year, he was getting beat one-on-one. And when they had defensive struggles, he usually had a front row view to whoever was scoring against him. That last game and a couple others, he was particularly strong. I remember him being complimented. I believe it was after the win in the return game against Fremantle, but the criticism was often greater than the praise. A lot of my positives are based on recency bias, and with how we've already mentioned Corey Durden, both positively and negatively, I think we've said enough about him. So my positive is going to be Matthew Cottrell, who is a player who had been a fringe guy in Carlton's selection for a couple of years, just hadn't been getting consistent time, finally got more of that, working well along the boundaries, creating goals, if not marking solidly and doing the job himself. Hopefully he'll stay in the main 22. He's only 22 years of age. For some reason, I thought he was older. All right, Benjamin, who is your negative for the Blues? I feel like you saw this one coming. It's Jack Noon's. I'd had this one made up before he'd been delisted. Of course, he's done some memorable things for Carlton. That after the siren goal against Fremantle two years ago was the first after the siren goal that we saw in our time watching the footy, even though it shouldn't have been his. It should have been Michael Gibbons' kick. But when he was needed to mark important balls this year, his hands weren't there. He lost pace. I'm not sure he's going to be able to stick on elsewhere. The game definitely caught up to him by season's end. Hopefully, consistency in the defensive list at large for Carlton will help them next year and beyond because they're going to be in the conversation for a while. They're never a club that's out of the spotlight, and despite how heartbreaking it was for their season to end in the fashion that it did, there's no reason for them to not continue to look upward. We're going to be looking upward at the eight teams that are still playing. When we reconvene for episode 60, we've successfully finished our So You Didn't Crack the 8, which was time-consuming but fun and worthwhile, and I think will be a yearly tradition for us moving ahead. But now, as September approaches, it's time to get into the finals matchups, so we'll be previewing each of those four games in our 60th episode. I will note that as teams get eliminated throughout finals, we'll be doing Similar post boards to what we did in these past couple episodes to provide a bit of closure on our discussion for them for the season because it's really easy, again, to get swallowed up in the current games and really not think about other teams aside from when trade or retirement news occurs. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at AmericansFooty. Footy. You can find me personally at BenjaminHK01. You can find me at Castle Media, and you can find Brian Harambe sitting right next to me, giving himself a bath. But you can also find him on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. Thanks again for listening. Hopefully you learned something new as we went through these 10 teams. Hopefully you listened all the way through, even if your team came up, because The way that we really think about sports in our family, I was finally able to really put my finger on what it was that gets us so invested in all sorts of games. It's that it's really rewarding when you follow one team to know about the happenings in the rest of the league because you can put everything in context then. And I hope that what we did provided context for where your team stands